Welcome to the Word Theatre Short Story Podcast, your weekly access to the best short stories read by great actors. My name is Kirsty Peart, Word Theatre's UK founder and creative partner. And I'm Cedaring Fox, Word Theatre founder and artistic director. Today, we're thrilled to feature an author very near and dear to Word Theatre, Pamela Painter. We've been extremely fortunate to have Pamela lead our annual Writers' Workshop and Retreat in England's Peak District twice now. Her expertise continues to drive the writing spirit that keeps our community running. And in this episode, Michael Zegan of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel performs her Pushcart Prize-winning story, Grief. Here to introduce her story, please welcome Pamela Painter. Hello, I'm Pamela Painter, author of the short story, Grief. It was such a pleasure to hear my story read by the wonderful actor, Michael Zegan. The idea for grief came from hearing someone recounting an anecdote about a car that was stolen in Boston. But the characters, the owner of the stolen car and the thief, the inside story of grief, and the startling recovery of the car, all came from my imagination, from asking, what if? Word theater is such a wonderful platform for stories, and I am delighted to be a part of it. I hope you enjoy grief. Harris was walking his usual route to work, up Beacon Street and past the State House. When half a block ahead, he saw their stolen car stopped at a red light. It was their missing car, all right. A white 94 Honda Accord, license plate 432 DOG. Easy to remember. And it was still pumping out pale blue exhaust, portent, Harris recalled thinking, of a large muffler bill and so much grief. He quickened his pace to get a look at the driver, leaning against his door, the driver's fingers drumming impatiently on the wheel as if he had better things to do with his time and Harris's car than wait for the light to turn green. Or maybe the police cruiser idling two cars behind was making him nervous. Harris ran back to the cruiser and rapped sharply on the window, passenger side. It scrolled down at a snail's pace. Pointing, Harris told the cop, See that car? Two cars ahead? The, the white Honda? That's my car. It was stolen two weeks ago. See? That's my car. As the light turned green, the Honda pulled away with the rest of the morning traffic. Bursts of adrenaline shot through Harris, the first thing he'd felt in the years since his wife's death. The cop looked after Harris's disappearing Honda and then back at Harris as if trying to decide if he was a nut. Okay, Mr. Geddon, the cop said. For once, Harris was grateful for the respectable-looking briefcase his wife had given him on their fifth anniversary. Harris yanked on the door handle, but it was locked. No, in back, the cop said. Get in the back. Harris threw his briefcase onto the back seat and slid in behind what was surely a bulletproof window between him and the cop, taxi style. Siren blaring, they crept down Beacon Street in a low-speed chase and swung right on Tremont. Cars parted for them reluctantly, giving up feet, not yards. Thirty seconds later, they were bumper to bumper with Harris's stolen car, and the cop was strongly suggesting on his loudspeaker that the driver pull over. Harris was sitting forward, his nose inches from the scratched plastic divider. That's it, that's my car, he said. You wait here, the cop said as if Harris had foolishly been planning to accompany him on the dangerous stroll to the stolen car. Unbidden images came to Harris's mind. 
He pictured a stash of cocaine or a weighty little handgun the new owner had tucked under the driver's seat or hidden among the maps of New England. If the thief had noticed all the hiking guides, he probably wondered why Harris needed a car. Now the cop was standing outside Harris's car, legs spread in cop stance, no doubt asking to see the driver's license and registration. <laughs> Good luck. The registration was in the glove compartment where it belonged, but hidden. His wife's idea. Inside a paperback mystery involving root vegetables. <laughs> the cop car's siren and flashing lights had drawn a business-suited crowd which gathered at a safe distance from any anticipated mayhem. Knowing Boston, Harris had never hoped to get their car back and still roadworthy. He'd merely expected to come home to a message from the police on his answering machine saying they'd found his car trashed and wired on the campus of Tufts or MIT or abandoned in a bad part of town. The day after his wife died, he'd driven an hour west on I-90 until he came to a rest stop with a phone booth. He'd pulled the folding door shut against the outside world, and he'd called home over and over to hear her voice say, Hello, please leave a message. We don't want to miss anything. Then he'd saved the tape and left a message of his own. No license on him, the cop said as he dropped into the front seat. Says he left the registration with his sister because she's trying to sell the car for him. He punched 432 DOG into a black box on the dash. Seconds later, like a fax, maybe it was a fax, outscrolled the sheet of paper with not much written on it, but the cop studied it thoroughly. He verified Harris's name, address, and when he'd reported the car missing. Then once again, he told Harris, wait here and approached Harris's stolen car, where he motioned for the driver to get out. The crowd drew back. The driver's Red Sox jacket had a ripped sleeve and his jeans were faded to a pale blue. Short and stocky, he was this side of 40, a limp ponytail hanging off a bald rump of a dome. <laughs> the cops spun him around and told him to lean against the car, his legs spread apart, then he patted ponytail down movie style before clamping handcuffs on his wrists. Satisfied, the cop pointed to where Harris sat, waiting, and gave Ponytail a slight nudge toward him. Soon Ponytail was peering in at Harris on one of those fake freeze frames Harris would trust in any movie from that moment on. His gaze was cool, not giving anything away. Real static hissed on the cop's radio as the dispatcher asked if the cop wanted backup. Nah, the cop said through the front window. I'm bringing him in. Somehow, Harris couldn't picture himself and Ponytail locked in side by side in the back seat of this cruiser. He tried to roll down the window, but it wouldn't budge. The cop nodded for Harris to get out. What else could his nod mean? Harris gathered up his briefcase and waited for the cop to open the door. Harris's peripheral vision assured him that Ponytail and he were not going to do anything rash, like make eye contact a second time. The car's all yours, the cop said. Keys are in it. All three of them looked at Harris's car, helping the police cruiser hold up traffic. Their bottleneck was doing a bad job of channeling three lanes of angry drivers into two. Thanks, Harris said. Then, you mean I just drive it away? Anywhere you want, the cop said. I can't take custody of him and your car at the same time. He's coming with me. I guess that leaves you with the car. His mustache twitched with humor, impatience, and pride. Sure thing, Harris said, something he knew he'd never uttered before in his life. Well, 
see you around. Feeling a bit ridiculous, Harris took possession of his car. He moved the seat back and adjusted the rear view in time to see Ponytail disappear into cop car land. The cop's hand on the back of Ponytail's neck to make sure his head cleared the door frame. The cop pulled out and around Harris, no siren, but his lights still flashing. Slowly, Harris drove back to his apartment and parked in front in the same spot from which his car had been stolen. For the first time, he assessed its state, then set to gathering up Dunkin' Donuts cups, McDonald's cartons, and candy wrappers, and stuffed them into a white Dunkin' Donuts sack. The paperback mystery, Roots of All Evil, was still in the glove compartment, and just as his wife had predicted, had disguised the registration well. The walking guides and maps were still under the seat. There was no handgun. And when Harris got home after work that night, there was no wife to tell the story to. Three days later, he was matching socks and watching the six o'clock news when the phone rang. He hoped it wasn't the solicitous new tenant from the upstairs apartment, a woman whose roast lamb and braised chicken tempted Harris to emerge from his solitary gloom, a gloom he always returned to well-fed, but even more despondent. She had probably noticed his car in the street and wanted to hear how he got it back. Perhaps help him celebrate. He didn't know how to tell her that more than the car was still missing. When he said, hello, he felt instant relief that it was not the woman upstairs, but a man's gravelly voice. You got my TVs, the voice said. Harris told him he had the wrong number. No, I don't, he said. I want my TVs. Harris hung up and went back to sorting socks. Mostly black, they were draped over the back of the couch, side by side, toes pointing down, the way his wife used to line them up. Now, fewer and fewer of them matched. The phone rang again. It was probably the guy missing his TVs, and Harris thought, let him. Next night, about the same time, the phone rang. Harris was sitting on the couch beside the leftover socks, again dreading the cheerful voice of the woman upstairs. A man's gravelly voice said, They're in the trunk of your car. The TVs? Harris said. See? I knew you had them. Harris matched the man's TVs with his own stolen car. Ponytail. Knowing Boston, what had made Harris think Ponytail would be arrested, indicted, convicted, put away? The cop never suggested to Harris that he should press charges a failure pointed out by his cynical colleague in the accounting firm where Harris spent his days. The cop probably dropped your ponytail guy at the next corner, Rent said. Clearly, ponytail wasn't calling Harris now from some jail. Lord, Harris didn't need this. Look, the man cut him off. You got your car back safe and sound, no harm done. I just want my TVs. How'd you get my number? Harris asked. Information, the man said. AT&T. Uh, someone's here, Harris said. Can we talk about this another time? You'll talk TVs tomorrow? Tomorrow, Harris said and hung up, picturing Ponytail carless, standing in some phone booth near a bus stop or subway, figuring his chances. Harris put a Stouffer's lasagna in the oven and headed out to visit his car. The car was where he parked it when he got back four days ago. In the beam of his flashlight, he unlocked the trunk and found three TVs wedged in tight, just like the man had said. Harris had to admire the way he packed. With a sharp pang of regret, he recalled his annoyance that his wife insisted on packing up the car for their camping trips. 
She'd assemble everything outside by the car, eye it thoughtfully, then begin with the large items first. The tent, the kerosene stove. At the end, there'd be no extra space, but nothing left behind. The TVs weren't new, but newer than Harris's. With large blank screens, all of a sudden he felt very tired. The next night he waited for the call, not sure what he'd say. He turned the news on with no sound. The back of the couch was free of socks, the socks put away. Who said they had to match? When the phone rang, Harris was ready with a gruff hello, but this time it was the woman upstairs calling to say she'd just slipped the stuffed free-range roasting chicken into the oven, and it was far too much for one person. It would be ready in about two hours. Cornbread and onion stuffing, she said, and quite a bit of tarragon. <laughs> Harris's wife had always used sage and rosemary. For what must have been the fifth or sixth time, Harris thanked her and said he'd bring a bottle of wine. He could hear his neighbor's stories about her new job, or Sip, her cat, who carefully coated his trousers with her hair, her hints about a new movie she'd like to see at the theater down the block. He wouldn't tell her, and she couldn't know, that his wife and he had held hands in every movie they ever saw, her hand in his, their fingers changing pressure in her lap of wool or denim or silk. Often now, his hands felt empty. His neighbor couldn't know he was afraid, no, terrified that in a moment of high emotion or fright at the images on the screen, he might reach for her hand, her perfectly good but achingly unfamiliar hand. I'll bring a bottle of white wine, he said, because he didn't know how to say no. Then he clicked off the silent news and hauled out his briefcase. Two hours was enough time to get through tonight's office work. Ponytail called five minutes later. To Harris's surprise, he found himself taking part in complicated, delicate arrangements to give back the TVs. Of course, this was after Ponytail explained that they had once been in dire need of repair, but now they were ready to be returned to their impatient owners. I pick up and deliver, he said. This won't take long. You got any TVs, toaster ovens, anything giving you trouble? Just the TVs, Harris told him. They said goodbye. Ten minutes later, Harris was driving to the appointed place, wondering if he really would go through with this maneuver. Lately, he didn't feel prepared for anything. He probably wouldn't be meeting Ponytail if his wife were at home waiting for him, worrying. They would have talked it over, together come up with a plan. It saddened him that he didn't know what she would have wanted him to do. As arranged, Ponytail was standing on the corner of Government Center near the subway stop, only a few blocks from the spot where Harris had been given back his car. Neither of them had suggested Ponytail come to Harris's house. Though the September night was warm, Ponytail's hands were tucked into the front pocket of his Red Sox jacket. This made Harris a little nervous. He pulled to the curb and beeped his horn twice. Ponytail glanced at Harris's car, and then, as if to shield himself from a brisk wind, he slowly turned full circle to light a cigarette behind cupped hands. Clearly, he was looking for a trap and somehow his caution made Harris feel a little better. Finally, Ponytail sauntered over and leaned down as if to make sure it was Harris. Then casually, he flicked away his cigarette and tugged on the handle of the passenger door. It was locked. Harris had made sure it was locked before setting off. Ponytail didn't seem to find the locked door strange and stepped back with a nod. Harris, embarrassed by his own unaccustomed display of caution, got out. 
his car idled in a light cloud of blue exhaust. Across the roof, Ponytail squinted at him, straight in the eye. Like I said on the phone, this won't take long. An hour, maybe. He took his hands out of his pockets and placed them flat on the car's roof, as if to offer Harris, with this gesture, his assurance that he was not going to do anything rash. No doubt he was counting on the same from Harris. Okay, Harris said, thumping the car's roof with the flat of his palm. Let's do it. Once again, adrenaline was pumping through him as it had when he first spotted his car. He slid behind the wheel, leaned over to unlock the passenger's door. Ponytail got in, the first passenger to ride in his car since his wife died. Although he'd never thought of his wife as a passenger. Ponytail's knuckles were white and his fingers drummed on worn denim knees. Where to? Harris said, belatedly thinking he should have told someone, maybe the woman upstairs, where he was going. Get onto Starro and head up Route 1. Ponytail buckled his seatbelt and slouched against the door, eyeing his side mirror, his ponytail a wisp on his solid shoulder. Stealthily, Harris rubbed the back of his neck, unable to imagine securing his hair with a rubber band, unable to feel a ponytail swishing against his collar, surprised to even consider it. Once they were on the open road, Ponytail said, Hear that rattle? Oil needs changing. Harris glanced down at the dash, which was reassuringly dark. A light usually comes on if them lights don't know nothing. So, you think it's the oil? Harris said. I was gonna do it. Yes, well, thanks, Harris said. You probably know about the muffler, Ponytail said. Harris told him he did. Then... You been repairing TVs long? Ponytail thought for a moment. Nah, not too long. What do you do? Mostly tax returns, Harris said. Repairing tax returns long? Ponytail said. Indeed, Harris thought, but only said, not too long. They settled into silence as the neon of roadside small businesses flashed by. After a while, Ponytail told Harris to turn off Route 1 and take the overpass then make a right at Cappy's Liquor. Three streets over, they were in a neighborhood of two-story houses, lanky trees and sloping, cracked sidewalks. Aluminum siding glowed in the evening's dusk, and one house had a horizontal freezer on the front porch, another house an old-fashioned gas oven. Harris had seen such things on porches before, but now they seemed strange and menacing. Okay, first stop coming up, he said, trying for a little lighthearted humor but it turned out, and why was he surprised, that all the TVs were going to one house. Ponytail's house. I said it wouldn't take long, Ponytail said, as if he was doing Harris a favor by consolidating the deliveries. They pulled into a narrow driveway bordered on one side by a chain-link fence. Lights were on in the downstairs of the house. A green pickup on cement blocks loomed off to the side. Now it was Harris's turn to think about a trap as Ponytail got out and slammed the car door. A jungle gym took up most of the small backyard. Harris guardedly emerged from his car. Clothes flapped on a clothesline in the skinny side yard next to the driveway. Blouses or shirts, work pants, kids' clothes, socks, and a long red dress or robe of some shiny material that caught the light from the street lamp. Ponytail followed Harris's gaze. Damn dryer's broken, he said. Wife's been nagging me to fix it. I keep forgetting to order the part. At the fence beneath the window, he gave a sharp whistle. 
Harris backed up fast till he was flat against the door with thoughts of taking off, TVs and all. Why on earth was he here? As if on cue, a woman came to the window and peered out through the screen. She was jiggling a kid about two on her hip. Absurdly, Harris found himself noticing that her blonde ponytail was fatter than her husband's. Hey, Ponytail called out to her, his thumb jabbing the air in Harris's direction. He's going to help me put the stuff in the garage. Another kid, not much older, butted his head under her arm. Bring in the clothes when you finish, she said without acknowledging Harris. Then smartly wheeled the children away. Let's get to it, Ponytail said. His voice startled Harris, who had been imagining what it would be like to park in this driveway, to live in this house. With studied efficiency, Ponytail heaved up the garage door and turned on the light. They're going in here, he said. With a jerk of his head, he indicated four sawhorses covered with boards at the rear of the garage. This makeshift table sat under a large, neat wallboard display of tools, most of which Harris didn't recognize, and three small blue cabinets of tiny drawers labeled screws and nails and nuts and bolts. To one side, Harris could make out the sturdy shapes of five microwaves still in their shipping boxes and four spiffy new leaf blowers. Ponytail swiped the table with a rag. It was a kind of no-comment gesture, and Harris was grateful for it. Together, they hoisted the first TV out of the trunk. Hobbling sideways, they carried it up the driveway, arms wrapped under and around it, foreheads almost touching across its top. Set her down right here, Ponytail panted, wiping his face on his jacket sleeve. The TVs were heavy. After the second one, Harris was sweating and huffing. His arms burned. He flexed his fingers and bent to wipe his face on his shirt sleeve. Out of shape from no exercise. No long hikes for over a year. They trooped back to the car for the last delivery. Done! Ponytail patted the last TV. Carefully, he spread a brown tarp over the TVs and microwaves, then turned off the light. Harris stood off to the side where he pulled down the garage door. Well, Harris said, and because he didn't know what else to say, he turned toward his car. It had probably been parked on and off in the same driveway for three whole weeks. The candy wrappers must have been from the kids. Beyond the fence, the shiny robe or dress was fluttering back and forth. It was actually a bathrobe, and Harris could see now that the hem was a little ragged and one of the elbows had a hole in it, but it was still of use. Without thinking, he walked past his car to the clothesline and reached up to undo the clothespins holding the robe in place. The robe was red. It was light and slippery as he folded it over his arm. Ponytail touched his shoulder. Hey, man, you don't need to do that. On the way home, Harris forced himself to drive slowly, even though the upstairs neighbor was waiting for him. She'd want to know all about his getting the car back. So over dinner, he'd recount how he'd spotted his car in traffic and his surprise that it was still roadworthy. He'd tell her about the telephone calls, the tense drive up Route 1, the wife and kids at the window, the garage full of companionable leaf blowers, microwaves, and TVs. He'd tell her how, as he was pulling out of the drive, Ponytail had slapped the side of his car hard, and Harris had jumped like he'd been shot. But Ponytail only wanted to tell him to remember and check the oil. Then, maybe somewhere along toward dessert, Harris would tell her more about his wife.
We hope you've enjoyed listening to Michael Zegan reading Pamela Painter's Grief. You can support Worth Theatre and your local bookstore by picking up some books on our digital shop at bookshop.org. Thanks again for tuning into the Word Theatre Short Story Podcast. We are truly proud to be sharing these stories from our archive with audiences across the globe. We hope you'll recommend us to your friends, write a review, and most importantly, be sure to check out our website, wordtheatre.org. It's there that you can learn how to become an annual member, sign up for our mailing list, and see all our fantastic upcoming events, both online and in person. Thank you, Jonathan Sachs, for composing our theme music. This is Kirsty Pitt in England. And I'm Cedaring Fox in Los Angeles, signing off. <laughs>